Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing a migrant church in el siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the migrant church continue to thrive? What should a migrant church look like today? These questions and more what we explore together with your host, Emmanuel Padilla, and la doctora Elizabeth Conde-Fraser. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On this episode, we're joined by Sandra Maria Van Opstel, author of The Next Worship and co-founder and executive director of Chasing Justice, a movement led by people of color to mobilize a lifestyle of faith and justice. We look at the failure of the multi-ethnic church movement and we ask the question, what does a multi-ethnic or multi-racial church look like when whiteness is decentered? So sientas en casa, make yourself at home, and let's get started. We're talking about a serious subject today, ladies. Yes, we are. It's a hot topic. It is not an easy and It's one. a very real topic. I know that Sandra is going to make it very real because... Um, <laughs> She's not going to talk about theory or anything else. She's, we're we're going to have something real here today. There aren't real answers to this, people. There's uh, a lot of um, complicated pieces, lenses, one on top of the other. And that's what makes for a great conversation, a conversation we hope all our listeners will be able to continue to have even after they hear the podcast. You know what I love about this episode is I get to join Elizabeth and Elizabeth is is no joke in her own right. She's going to say what she what she thinks and what she means. <laughs> But Sandra is an Enneagram 8 self-professed. I'm not I'm not I'm not uh, ascribing that to her. Self-professed 8 and Sandra you speak your mind too. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm excited to to be uh exploring this topic and finding a way forward. Yeah, amen. Hey, you've been on a World Last Spoken podcast before. Uh, we've had a conversation together, but this is the first time that you join us for the Mestizo podcast. We're switching it up. Elizabeth is going to be leading the interview piece, but I do want to say something to those first-time listeners who haven't been with us before. If you're new to the show, welcome to a mixed space, a space where people live in the hyphen, ni de aquí, ni de allá. There are a couple other things I need to make you aware of that happen here at World Outspoken. We have been doing a webinar series with our friends at Passion to Plant. It's a ministry, a network that helps black and brown church planters start their churches. It's run by Dr. Liz Rios, who was with us just last week doing a, a workshop, a webinar with a few of our invited guests, pastors and preachers who were with us. Don't worry if you missed that first webinar. It's not too late to join us for the next one. It'll happen on April 19th at 6.30 Central. We'll be joined by Dr. Eric Rivera, who Sandra knows so well. They were students together up at Trinity. Pastora Sara Gautier out of, uh, out of Boston area. Dr. Ephraim Smith and his wife, Denisha Norwood Smith, will be joining us for a real conversation about what's hard about black and brown church planting. So if you're a student interested in ministry at the church, a church planter, a senior, associate pastor, someone who's just really curious about what needs to happen to make healthy churches, you can join us by going to worldoutspoken.com slash webinars. Again, that's worldoutspoken.com slash webinars. That's all I have. Elizabeth, it's all you. Thank you. Thank you. And again, welcome, Sandra. We're so happy to have you here today with us. You've been a pastor in different congregations, and your most recent congregation was a uh, multi-ethnic, multicultural congregation. Tell us how you became involved with it, and what things were you intentional about as you moved into that congregation, as, as you saw yourself developing your ministry there? Yeah, well, um, I'm so excited to be able to talk about the current congregation where I was pastoring and where I now continue to, to call home. Um, Grace and Peace Church is a place that um, I had been kind of watching and uh, serving alongside of and learning from uh, for about a decade when I was the Chicago Urban Program Director uh, with InterVarsity. And I um, actually, a mural that's up in the church right now in our old church building was painted by, by my brother a decade before I came back there. Um, those are longer stories. But anyway, I ended up moving into that neighborhood and <laughs> pastoring at that church. And, um, and really what I saw was a church that was doing some amazing, uh, amazing work in the community, um, faith-rooted community organizing, um, you know, gospel proclamation, um, 
advocacy for things that needed to be changing in our community. And um, I was so drawn to it. And I remember I was actually in kind of like the the slots to um, to uh, church plant with the denomination, the other denomination I was a part of. Um, I had been a part of planting campus ministries. I had been a part of planting uh, a leadership, uh, planting a church. And I was like, yeah, I want to plant more churches. I want to see more thriving churches in our neighborhoods. And a friend of mine, African-American friend was speaking uh, to my students at the urban program. And, you know, he said, a lot of people want to come up into our neighborhoods and plant these churches. And, and they just, you know, they have this vision uh, for like, just really seeing the church thriving on the West side of Chicago. And, and he started describing it, like all the people I'd heard in seminary wanting to be urban church planters. And he said, I just want to ask those pastors, like, do you not see us here? Do you not see us here? Um, and so I, I was really um, provoked by his, uh, you know, by his question. Mm-hmm. And I decided that, that this church that I had been partnering with, Grace and Peace Church, would, I really felt the Lord inviting me to come alongside of the leadership there and just give the best of all that I had learned and all that I had deconstructed and all the passions I had around a church being a part of a community um, to this church, as well as learning alongside of them all that they had done over the decades that they had grown there. And so, um, yeah, so I approached the pastor. I said, you know, we've been doing this ministry together for a long time, you know, if I raise my support, could you see a place for me on staff? And we began about a year long uh, exploratory relationship um, with the the lead pastors. And um, my husband and I started congregating there for about a year before I came on staff as the associate and then later the executive pastor of the church. So I was there um, until this July. And then I stepped down uh, to be able to to continue to do work with Chasing Justice. But we plan on raising our kids there, marrying them off there. Uh, <laughs> we don't plan on going anywhere. The, the work that's being done there is amazing. So it has um, become home. It is home. It has been and, and, and is home. Yeah. And I think my my intention when I got there was, wow, this is, you know, a fantastic group of about 70 uh, predominantly Puerto Rican uh, people of faith leaders that are in this community um, doing some amazing work. What would it look like to to grow into not only the number, grow into the diversity that this neighborhood is really offering us, which was more and more Spanish speaking, first generation Central American immigrants, Mexican immigrants, um, second gen Mexican um, youth, and, and obviously completely different culture. And also African Americans, because as gentrification was you know, kind of pushing West, um, all of our communities were becoming more and more mixed and the churches weren't, they weren't adjusting to the mixture of the neighborhoods. And so So that's an interesting mix, Sandra, uh, because you have first generation, we're talking about folks who are going to speak mainly Spanish. You have second generation, right? Folks are going to be speaking mainly English. Then you have people who are not Latino at all, who are going to be speaking, you know, mainly English. So you have this, you know, this mix, you have this mix of uh, people learning to live in this community and to understand what it is to be in this community, right? Some very different perspectives. Um, where were the places uh, that were most uncomfortable? Where there were the places where you had to do a lot of the work to help people build community with one another? Yeah, I think some of it was just uh, developing language around um culture and race and the the parallel experiences as well as the the distinct experiences even within the latina community because i think a lot of people when they say multi-ethnic church like when i look at the research and hear the stories when they say multi-ethnic church i think they're just saying like church led by a white person that has other peoples of color inside you know well Um, and and, and I think that's what they mean. So when I think about, you know, Asian, Pan-Asian churches or African black churches that are that contain the black diaspora or mm-hmm. Latina churches, really, in all of our variations, we are multicultural, yes. multi-ethnic, multilingual, multiracial. And because of our cultural values, many times multi-generational um, and multi-class. So all the multis are there. Um So I think what I was hoping for was like, can we have a shared language around what is racial and what is cultural and what is ethnic? And can we also speak to the diversity within our own communities in a way that doesn't 
divide us, but actually explains why we have some differences. So, you know, cultural, like even not just language, but the way in which we communicate if we're from Central America or Mexico and have more indigenous cultural values versus Caribbean, Argentine, you know, more direct conversation, you know, in in the way that we communicate and have conflict. So I would constantly see things happening where there was conflict between leaders or between congregants. And I'm like, oh, that's just a culture. That's clearly a cultural difference. (laughs) Um, I would see our teams go to neighborhood meetings and they would come back and there would be so much misunderstanding between um, African-American leaders in the community and, and, and Mexican leaders, particularly in the community. And then Puerto Rican leaders who felt ultimately confused by what was happening between the other two. And so I think I just thought there is so much um, opportunity for clarity if we only had a shared language. And so I began to really think about, I was doing a lot of the um, developing of the uh, preaching concepts and kind of preaching calendar. How do we help people understand uh, where culture is present in scripture and how do we speak to how culture shapes our view of how we do community and how we communicate and and at the same time addressing racial realities that we are experiencing, sociological realities we're experiencing on the west side of Chicago in the midst of gentrification as black and brown communities began to bump up against one another. Um, so, so there was a lot. Let me ask you this. What I hear you say is that <clears throat> You used scripture and the moment of preaching to create this common language for people. That it was a way, and and people don't always understand how powerful preaching can be. But preaching, if you're you're under a, a preacher every week, what begins to happen is that the way that this preacher speaks begins to create a paradigm for your mind. People have to understand that when they preach, right? So if you're a preacher who goes all over the place, then that's what you're teaching people to do when they think and when they speak about the gospel. So what I hear you saying is that you are very intentional and very systematic. And and please uh, correct me if I'm putting words in here that aren't what you were, but that you were trying to be systematic and intentional about pointing to the issues in scripture and as you spoke about it giving people this this uh, common gospel language biblical language to speak about the things that they were experiencing that were taking place in their midst am i correct about that yes absolutely i think preaching is one of the primary ways we were trying to develop that as a team because it was a shared at our church and it continues to be a shared pulpit. Um, And so we're developing a series and ways of preaching that, that really, I think are most true to scripture. It's like you're, you're, if you're preaching through the life of, of Moses and you're not talking about the reality that he was displaced culturally multiple times and that all of those cultural realities made him a trilingual, you know, tricultural, uh, border crosser, you know, bridge builder, disruptor in all spaces. If you don't talk about that, then the he was confused our, too. And he was confused too. Then the youth in our neighborhood, what are they going to do with themselves with one Mexican parent and one Puerto Rican parent or one black parent, one Puerto Rican parent trying to figure themselves out at a white school? You know, I mean, if, if we don't speak to those realities from where they're actually present in scripture, um, in the life of Paul, you know, in the life of Ruth, um, then we actually miss out on opportunities to see the reality of what was happening in either the early church in Acts or in the life of the, the life of the prophets. So I think preaching was one of those ways. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, preaching, leadership, and worship. So I would say those are the three ways. And preaching obviously is a part of the worship experience, but musical worship and prayer, preaching, and leadership. So um Obviously, we had to ask questions about what, what we were what we were doing in our worship experiences, what we were praying for or ignoring in prayer, what we were addressing or not addressing in our in our cultural reality. Um, so, for example, if you're a church that has um, that is multiracial and has Asian Americans in your church, and you're not calling out and speaking to the anti-Asian issues and, and uh, crimes that are happening right now and calling your your black brothers and sisters and your Latina brothers and sisters to do so as well, then we're missing out on opportunity to call people to collective liberation. So, um, and then leadership, um, 
you know, asking the question about how diverse is this leadership that we have here? Is everyone here Puerto Rican? Are there any Mexicans or Central Americans? Are there first gen? Um, who's here that's representing decision making? Sandra, mm-hmm. you used Very the word important. earlier. Power. Yes, Am sorry. You used the word earlier that I just want to, speaking of the intentionality, both of you, um, you know, Dr. Conde Frazier, you, Sandra, both of you are really, really careful about the words you use. Use the word bumping when talking about the the black and brown community as gentrification was sh- uh, shaping kind of the movement in the city. Was there conflict? Um, was there conflict as you were trying to create a, you know, um, a, a multi-ethnic church that at its base was already, you know, racialized minorities? Was there conflicts that you had to address? I mean, is there a conflict between the black and brown community in our country? Yes, there is. You know, um, I, I think it's it's such an odd space to be a Latina in this country right now, in our experience, um, because um, we have, we are brown and we are white and we are black. Um, and so one of the things I think that's was important for our multiracial context uh, to to address was our own anti-blackness and our own colorism within our Latina community. So the Afro-Latinos, for example, there was a journey. Like I remember hearing things like in my community from people, I'm like, did they just say that out loud? Like, do they think I'm white? And that's why they said that clearly they think, you know, like, um, so I, I think that part of it is, you know, giving people a process that lets them come to be reconciled to themselves, that they're, Mestizaje is not just a brownish mestizaje, that it's actually a, a history of uh, indigeneity, a history of um, African you know, ancestors, a history, and they, not just you, you arrive as a brownish person, but that, that there are collective generational histories that are mixed in you and you have to be reconciled to that. So for me, like I am Dutch, I am Spanish, and I am a mixture of things from Colombia. And so I am both, like many of us, oppressor and and oppressed in my body. And so I have to go through that. But today, as I appear in my neighborhood, I'm the white lady that walks around because I'm so light skin, you know? So um, I think coming to grips with some of that um, internally had to happen before we could ever be anything in the community. But absolutely. Okay, let me tell you, let me just tell you an experience like just one program we had, okay? I'm gonna tell you how complicated Please. it was. Tell about the journey, right? Something about the journey. What that yeah. Like. So in the summer times, our church has a program that's in partnership with Safe Haven with Chicago Public Schools. And so we employ teenagers from our community um, and from our church to care for and kind of do um, um, academic enrichment and arts with kids in the neighborhood. So watch this. Over the years, this is what happened. It was more mixed, kind of more, uh, you know, you couldn't really tell who was what. And then over the years, it was very clear that the kids in the program were Mexican or Central American. Some Puerto Ricans, but almost all Mexicans. Because the recent waves of immigration and, and movement into the community, you know, the K through eight, they were Central American and Mexican. The kids working in the program from our from our church were primarily Puerto Rican or a mixture of Puerto Rican Mexican because they had you know you know been in the same neighborhood for a while. That's that's the neighborhood we live they in. They were the ones who were at, grown up. They were the ones who were the camp counselors for the kids, right? And then we got a grant to partner with this thing called One Chicago, and all the kids that were invited to come and work at our church, not from our church, were African-American, okay? So imagine that. Black teens from the west side of Chicago, Garfield Park, working with Puerto Rican youth, um, about their same age or younger, growing up in Humboldt Park, you know, Hermosa, ministering to and caring for kids from Central America and Mexico who were Spanish dominant. Imagine the cultural <laughs> realities of what could happen there. Yes. So, and none of this is, this is all through the, this is all through the community center. So it's not at this point, it was its own NGO. It wasn't uh, faith-based. And so you have to follow all these kind of guidelines and rules, but we're like, listen, we got to prepare these people because, oh, and then you would add in like inner varsity or Wheaton students that were Asian or white coming out from the outside, you know, partnering with us. And it was like a hot mess. So in anticipation for that, the pastora who runs, who is the CEO of the community center, um, invited myself and Jazzy Johnson and a few others to do some um, 
in a kind of racial training, anti-racism training, cross-cultural training, you know, play games with them, you know, all those kind of cross-cultural games we do with people when they head into missions um, and to really contextualize those not for white kids going to, you know, brown countries, but for black and brown youth working together. And so it's work that I had done when I had worked with them over a couple summers. And so we adapted to training to be to work for this dynamic. And every summer it's about the same dynamic, you know, like there's every once in a while there's a, there's a one or two black children in the program or, um, and now where we're located physically is in Austin, which is almost, it's predominantly black. It's 99, you know, 90 some percent black. So the hope would be that as the neighborhood gets to know that we're there, more and more black children will come to the program. But now we, I mean, just imagine all the realities that that's going to be parents communicating with each other and language stuff. And so I think we were really trying to say being multiracial and multicultural is more than just taking a picture together and saying, isn't this cool? We're all quote unquote, black and indigenous people of color. We're all the same. No, we actually have even within Latinidad, we have so much distinctive that we need to talk about what does it mean to be a person in a church, even if you're both of the same class where one can access healthcare and aid and the other one is undocumented so they can't access anything. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? And when people lift up their prayers, that's where you hear all of that coming out. Absolutely. Because that's Absolutely. where people have a place of trust and they could say, hey, pray for this or, you know, oren porque necesito un doctor, you know, tengo a donde ir and, you know, that, all of that. I mean, you, you will hear all of that. So as people are engaging this, as people are, are in each other's presence, engaging these pieces, what happened, Sandra? How did they grow? Where were the places of growth? You know, I think... It starts with reconciliation to one's own self, as I said earlier. I think that was actually the key, like for Afro uh, for Afro Latinos within the congregation to say, to say in the last year, um, we need to raise our voices with the African American community, with the Black community, because we're also Black, and to know that they wouldn't have said that. Not all of them, but you know, without naming names, some people wouldn't have said that, you know, five years ago. Mm -hmm. That to me says, whoa, well, look at the healing that God did in their bodies, in their very bodies, God did a healing. Um, I think to have had um, single um, mothers with uh, children come across the uh, last wave of, of immigration that we had through uh, through the the migration that happened from Central America a, a couple of years ago, and to have them in our congregation as participating, uh, responsible, you know, kind of like integrated members and to see their journeys, it has, to, it makes for our Puerto Rican passport holding um, congregants to ask questions about why they haven't raised their voices around immigration in the past. Um, because I would say that I didn't see that as a passion in many of the churches on the Northwest side of Chicago. It just wasn't there because it didn't affect them. And so right. in the same way that immigration um, doesn't affect most African, where they think it doesn't affect them, um, most African-American churches until you begin to have Africans in your congregation and then that changes everything. Um, so I think to see people stand in solidarity and be in solidarity with one another, um, you know, young young families that are raising their children in the neighborhood and are confronting their own anti-blackness um, and having to hear from a black youth for the first time, their fear and trembling and terror that they feel being in the neighborhood. Um, law enforcement in our church, you know, uh, public servants in our church, um, politically divided people all sitting next to each other in the church. Uh, you know, the, the last election will tell you that we, 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 we as a Latina community voted across the board, depending on where we were located, um, our country of origin, our race, et cetera. So this is complicated and it, it forces us to be people that walk with humility and questions. So I actually think People assume just because it's mostly a Latina church, if it, you know, it's definitely multi-ethnic, absolutely. Um, and I think that people think we have it easy when in reality, there's so many dynamics that are happening in the church. 
And my Lord, what are you thinking about this? I mean, I, I, I see you, your, all of your nonverbals going off. Let me give you a moment <laughs> to talk. Yeah. You know what? That, that comment of healing within their own bodies stuck out to me, especially as it relates to Puerto Ricans. I had to come to a similar sort of awareness and conviction about my own disregard to immigration issues. And so, so that resonates with me as something that I, I had to become aware of. And it, it, it happened for me in college, having to interact with, I was a part of a, a, a student group for Latinos here uh, in college. And, and it helped to interact on the regular with students who were international students who had to really consider like, oh, they can't get a job outside of the, the college campus. They can't do X, Y, Z. Wait a minute, but they're Latinos like me. And so I had to come to that awareness. I, I bring that up because I'm wondering what things were done at the church. Well, actually, you know what? I'm going to change the question. Uh, I'm changing the question here because I got a lot that I want to ask. But, but my real question is this. How do you balance accountability saying, hey, you can't believe that. That's wrong or that's terrible with creating gracious spaces for growth? What, what do we do there? Does that make sense? How do we say, actually, that's a bad belief and we need to reject that and have some some accountability around that while at the same time guiding someone to healing and growth? How do we do those things together? Well, I wish I was good at that. Um, I am an eight on the Enneagram, so I do tend to come in through the front door with, you know, thus says the Lord, you know, in Amos, Micah, Isaiah, Genesis, Revelation, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, um, love your neighbor as yourself and care for the stranger and the foreigner. <laughs> um, I think I think the first thing we have to do is have a biblical um, apologetic for things like immigration or anti-racism or whatever it is. We, we have to know that the that we don't have to make it up. It is clearly in the scriptures and the scriptures give us the authority to be able to call our congregation to a more free life, a life that is freer. You know, whether you're speaking to um, economic greed, whether you're speaking to uh you know, uh, uh, xenophobia, whether you're speaking to racism, I think even within our own communities of color, I think we have the authority of scripture to rely on. So um, for me, it really is saying, um, let me let me interrogate how scripture helps us to do that. And so let me just give you a quick example. We were studying, I, I told the you know, I told that we were going through, we usually do Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. And I said, you know, it's time for Old Testament. Let's do Ruth. Let's do the book of Ruth because everybody, and, and that doesn't even speak to the, the patriarchy in, in some of our churches, but I was like, let me, let's do Ruth because everybody thinks Ruth is for women's conferences. Um, and it's relegated to women to talk about their friendships, but Ruth is about a a compassionate, loving, fierce God who is willing to walk with God's people until they find their liberation and freedom and healing. So, I got to time my water drinks better. I was about to take a sip of water as she said that about women's conferences. I almost spit all over the equipment Sorry. here recording this so, podcast. So, yeah. So I thought, I thought, well, we, we, I mean, Ruth was one of the books we studied like deeply, like sentence by sentence in Hebrew. So I was like, I'm gonna make use of this, you know, Hebrew work. Um, and we did a series, the, the preaching team through Ruth, and we, we joined it with a, a, campaign that World Relief was doing around Syrian refugees at the time. Wow. It was the height of the refugee crisis um, and around the unaccompanied minors that were coming through. And so basically it was going to be a scripture study through the book of Ruth showing God's care and concern for the vulnerable and dispossessed and, and, you know, those who were like, uh, on a journey, on their journey, like that sojourners. Um, and I invited a friend of mine who leads worship up in, um, Wisconsin. His name is Michael Shabo. And so I invited him and his brother to come down and tell their story as Syrian refugees, how they came to this country, what their parents were still going through in Syria, um, and to lead us in worship. And alongside of this story I was telling, we were telling in Ruth. And so I think it was a combination of scripture study and, and really orienting people to the what is actually in the passage, what it says about God and us. And then Con being confronted not with just like the topic of Syrian refugees, but two actual Syrian refugees. Um, and then at the end of that series, uh, I was thinking it was four, four or six weeks. I just, that, that week it was my turn to, to preach. And I, I just wanted to compel them like, who better, who better to stand alongside of refugees that are coming from Syria or children that are coming from Central America and Mexico than people 
people who know what it's like, like Ruth and Naomi, to be in a country where they are not welcomed. Who better to stand up for them than people who have that immigration story, if you're Latina within this congregation, who better to, to stand up for feeling like you should be included, but you often feel left out than people of color? Who better than our than us as African Americans and Mexicans and Puerto Ricans and Colombians and you know who better to raise our voices? Are we expecting the white voices in the suburbs to raise their voices for refugees, or is it going to be those of us that actually have um, identify with that story in some way? Um, and then I just invited them to like text the thing or whatever they were going to do, sign up, you know. Um, and so what I was trying to do was create an experience of the word, relationship, worship and actual action to advocacy as a way of compelling people to move. That was our first kind of movement in that direction, I think. Um, and then, you know, if, if you have 30 kids every day coming to your school, to your after-school program, and every single time you're overhearing their conversations, they're talking to one another about how to respond when ICE comes to your door, if they're talking about like, you know, make sure you, that you tell your parents, si la mira viene, tiene que hacer esto. They have to do that as immigration comes. And they're seven years old and they're 10 years old. And you're thinking to yourself, I wasn't doing that when I was seven and 10 years old. So your heart begins to change because you have proximity to one another. That's good. It's That's proximity important. and imagination, right? You create a space for their imagination to, to conceive and see things differently. I really appreciate that. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll continue this conversation about what it looks like to do multi-ethnic ministries beyond whiteness. Hey, this is Lucas, co-host of Questions from the Pew. We're a podcast on the World Outspoken Network, and our third season is right around the corner. This season, my co-host Riker and I are going to be talking about conspiracy theories and Christians, mental health, violence in the Bible, and other topics you might not hear about on a Sunday morning. We'll be digging into all that and more on this season of Questions from the Pew. So join the conversation. Sandra, you raised some really wonderful points here that I want us to just sort of uh, make a pause and take those points and sort of mull over them just a little bit within ourselves, right? So you're talking about proximity, imagination, not just awareness. Awareness barely scratches the surface, right? But then... After awareness, there's got to be this proximity where you can no longer escape the awareness, right? Awareness, oh, yeah, you know, I know about this, and then you kind of walk away. But now there's this, this proximity that you're living with. You're living with this. And your imagination, your passion, you know, your compassion needs imagination, Right? And so all of these pieces are taking place. You're talking about a practice of life. And people don't realize that you can't just come to worship and walk away and think that it's going to do something for you. Uh, the only way that worship does anything for anyone is that we have a practice of life as a community. And that's what it seems that this community was putting together and that the preaching and the teaching and the invitations that you made, right? Because these weren't, you know, invitations to come and say yes to Jesus every day. It was You're saying yes to Jesus' ways and values of the kingdom, right? This is what you're inviting people to. And so, and then there's an actual practice of the church. It's, just, it's not like, let's do X. And then everybody's like, yeah, let's do X. And then there's nothing, you know, there's no place to put the energy then the church is putting the energy there, right? So that's a practice of life. And in all of this, it's all of these relational pieces that slowly become transformational. And that's how discipleship is taking place. Now, having said that, this is the reality of this multicultural brown and black church with a leadership that represents the same diversity of the members and the, the community that people are living in. How is that different than multicultural churches that have white leadership 
and that become multicultural for very different reasons. And I'm going to show a little bit of my prejudice here, but I would say for artificial reasons, right? And where people are sort of trying to make something happen. What, what's the difference between this story that you're telling us and these other churches where the information, the research that's coming out is saying it's not working there. What's the difference, Sandra? Because you've written about this. Yes. Yeah, so um, that's a great question. So let me, let me first, before I tell you what's different, let me tell you what's the same. Okay. <laughs> what's the same is that it's a process of what you said. I, I love the way that you the recapped what, what I was talking about. It really is developing a space to, 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 to correct a distorted imagination and to create a new, as Willie Jennings says, Christian imagination, to, to imagine something new and proximity to one another. Because now we actually move locations. We're in, in the community of Austin and we're struggling to, to make sure that there's enough, le uh, not just represent representational leadership, but truly um, African-Americans that are on staff and in leadership that are empowered and to make that be an organic, authentic thing instead of a tokenizing thing. Like all those things are the, they're, they're the same kinds of things that all multi-ethnic churches go through. There is typically a community in power of any multi-ethnic church. And that community in power has preferences. And those preferences are often uh, intrinsic and they're not understood. They're not like named. Um, and so because that preference is not named um, and they don't have a language for it, they continue to operate in that present uh, preference because they have power. They don't need to change that preference. Mm -hmm. And therefore people that are coming in may not need to. So I, I think every multiracial, multi-ethnic church has to go through that. And I would say the church that I'm at has gone through that over the last seven, eight years and continues to go through that as the racial dynamic and generational dynamic changes, right? So, and class dynamic, <laughs> um, all those things are always changing. So that's that's one thing that's similar. And, and, it, and, and we, we ought to operate and need to operate in humility in order for that to happen well. Um, and most of us just hold on to those preferences, like at a level of idolatry that's so strong, you know. Say it, idolatry. <laughs> it's idolatry. That's it's idolatry. A very important word here. That's a very important word. Let's not use it loosely. Yes, it is a level of idolatry because it's about ourselves, right? It's definitely about our self-interest. It's about you know what makes me comfortable. It's it's idolatry and. The, the scriptures invite us to do what doesn't come naturally. Absolutely. Starting from the Torah all the way to Jesus, who, who then quotes the Torah, particularly Deuteronomy. It's all about inviting us to places that don't come naturally to us, right? And that's what it is to move toward God instead of these other idols that we have. Go ahead. Say more. Yeah, so that is the same, and it's a struggle, and it continues to be a struggle. God help us, you know, fill us with, with God's spirit, and hopefully we'll keep moving forward. Um, but I think one thing that's different than a multiracial church, a multicultural church that's led by a white person or in a white denominational context or kind of in whiteness um, is that um, we operate for example, as peoples of color who are marginalized socially, economically, um, oftentimes politically within a Christian space. But when you have a white denomination or a white leader leading a multi-ethnic church, they are not only in power within that own space, but everyone, when you turn on, when you you know go to YouTube or go to Spotify or go to wherever, um, their, their supremacy as white leaders is only reinforced by American Christianity. And so white men are supposed to be in charge in, in American Christianity. White men are supposed to write our books on leadership. Uh, white men are supposed to write our commentaries. White men are supposed to lead in our seminaries. They're supposed to be the experts at our conferences and we receive from them. And, um, and I wrote about it in my, in, in the, in the book, still evangelical, but that, that kind of narrative that gets created then is that white men are the universal donor to all types. And so I'm a universal donor. I'm O negative, my blood type, everybody can receive my blood type, but I can't receive from anyone or it's toxic to my body. It actually shuts me down. 
And in the same way, the, the white male voice in American Christianity has become the universal donor in such a way that they can give to everyone, but they cannot receive where it becomes toxic to their bodies and they shut down. What a this metaphor. Narrative, yeah. <laughs> so, so this narrative then, if, if we're developing multicultural churches or if white churches are desiring to be quote unquote diverse and they actually get to representational diversity, what we don't identify in those spaces is how power is at play. And so we utilize um, kind of cross-cultural, um, you know, cross-cultural tools and rules to navigate those spaces. Like all of us has something to say. Everyone has something to bring to the table. We should all participate and get along. We should be in unity. What it doesn't address is that you have a group of people where there's a, 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 a group that's centered and then groups that are marginalized or, um, or kind of, uh, silenced it's you know silence so as long as you're there it's fine but just don't speak up because you know you're kind of hard to get along with you know you kind of are always you'll disrupting make us all you're, uncomfortable you'll make you'll yeah. set up you'll well, mess you're not, you, up because that's not what we do here we don't talk about those things here because it gets all messed up you're going to cause the vision you know and, and and we're happy people we get along that's the christian way you know we really don't talk about these things because that's that's how we can get along yeah. And, 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 you know, and sometimes if it doesn't go well, then, you know, you're just not a good fit for this organization. You're just not a good fit for leadership here. You're just not a good fit for, and anytime you hear you're not a good fit, um, you know, black female mentor of mine told me that that's, that's, that's code for, you know, I'm about to say a racist thing, you know, I'm about to say an engendered <laughs> thing. Um, and so I think the problem though, is that as we think about multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multicultural churches, the narrative that's in the books that we read or the articles that are published, really what they're talking about is white-led or white-structured or white-cultured multi-ethnic churches. Um, they're not talking about all of the pan-Asian multicultural and multi-ethnic churches that exist across our country. They're not talking about um, the black churches that are made up of the African diaspora and are multicultural and multi-ethnic and multilingual. I mean, ask any Nigerian or African-American or Jamaican what the differences are between their cultures. Mm -hmm. Seriously. Um, you know, they're not, they're definitely not talking about the Latina churches, which as we've said, are multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-class, multi all the things. So they would see our church and say, um, that is a homogeneous, that is a Latina church but they would see a church that has 80% white and 20% other as a multi-ethnic church. Even if it's not multicultural at all, even if the leadership is all white men, um, as long as there is some token person of color to put on a stage somewhere and on a picture, and they can show you in their data that 20% of their congregation is from a different culture other than white, that would be considered as a, not only a model multi-ethnic church, but their pastors will go and speak at multicultural conferences. Oh yeah. Sandra, can that's I ask? A, that's a difference. <laughs> I have a pessimistic question. If I, if I okay. may interrupt okay. with a, with a pessimistic question, cause I, I mean, I think that explanation of the difference is spot on, but, um, our, our sister, uh, Carrie Little Edwards, Corey Little Edwards is her name, excuse me, uh, Corey Little Edwards. She's a professor out at University of Ohio. She wrote The Elusive Dream. She, she's, uh, she's pretty pessimistic about all multi-ethnic, multiracial churches that have the presence of white folk because, and, um, I'm not quoting her, but I'm, but I'm kind of reflecting on the things that I've read from her, right? Essentially, it's the idea that we black and brown folk, we, we have a role we play in this because we also have internalized the idea that, hey, white people should be in charge or, hey, we should make this so that the white people are comfortable. Hey, maybe Sunday worship shouldn't be done in gospel because they're not going to feel um, a gusto in that, right? And so th there's something going on in us that even when we have multicultural churches that are Hispanic-led, the presence of white folk does something to us. Can you say something to that kind of pessimism? Yes, you know, I, 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 wow, you're catching me on a day where I, I, I want to believe in God's kingdom vision, but I'm having trouble seeing it anywhere. So um, it's not that I don't have faith. It's that I have little faith. Oh, ye. So um, 
I think that um, the multi-ethnic church movement, as I've, I've participated in it, like I've been at the center of that thing since 1996 on campus, in the church and in the city, you know, in, in, in urban ministry, um, I have seen it be a movement of assimilation, a movement of silencing, and a movement of traumatizing people of color. That is why you'll see right now, not only on, for example, Pass the Mics, Leave Loud episodes, where Jamar and Tyler and Allie and whoever are Those have been their bodying officers. me. <laughs> Those yeah. have been bodying me. Oh, my gosh. But for the rest of us that are a tad bit older, like, you know, myself and my co-host on Chasing Justice, we're talking about, like, remember when, when we left in 2007 and no one said anything? Um, because even if even if women of color leave loud, because typically they're the ones that leave first, even if women of color leave loud, no one notices that we left because no one is really centering women at all. So um, I think what we see is this intense trauma that people of color have experienced. So I saw in 2017, a mass exodus of my friends um, from spaces of white, multi-ethnic, white reconciliation movements back. In, and I think I actually participated in the article that Aaron um Chan Ding wrote um, in Christianity Today about a return back to immigrant churches. That's a part of my story. I went to Grace and Peace for healing. I didn't go there to like make a difference. I was like, I'm falling apart. These white people have me crazy. You know, um, I, I just, I, these, I just can't, I can't anymore with the assimilation. Um, I need a place where I know that I'm, that who I am is okay. And I don't have to constantly be changing. I was coming out of seminary as one of really one of the only women and definitely one of the only Latinas. I think I was the only one in the program. Um, and I went for healing and I think you're seeing that. So I think the multi-ethnic church movement, I think has been more traumatizing to people of color than it has actually been inspiring. It's been disempowering. So disempowering. And it's very disempowering. Um, and I think we had hopes, you know, in 1996, I had hopes in 2006, I had hopes in 2016, I had hopes. And in 2018, I was like, nah, this, this space is, um, it's never going to let me be me. And so instead of trying to make multi-ethnic churches have to happen in white spaces, what if we just pursued racial justice and reconciliation and shalom in our own spaces as people of color. Like, why do we always have to be including, you know, like if there's no white people in our neighborhood, why are we doing that? Why are we trying to be a quarter white, a quarter Asian, a quarter black and a quarter, uh, you know, Latina if, if our neighborhood is black and brown. And so at the context I was in as, as a church, like we have tons of relocators, y'all. Like people come from CCDA, they come from Wheaton, they come from Moody, they come from all over the place. Um, and we tell them what we tell everybody. Like we have an associate pastor who's a white guy from the South and we tell them what we tell everybody, you are welcome here. If you want to be a part of this community, you don't have to apologize for being yourself and your gifts will be utilized in the house of God. But if you came here to fix us, if you came here to be in charge, if you came here to critique, this is not going to be a fun experience for you. Um, because we know that God's present here and we know that our community has fantastic leaders. If you'd like to work alongside of them, we welcome you. Um, and I think my husband, he's white. He's an IT project manager. He's served on the board of our community center. He's been a leader in the church. He's led a small group. We're not about centering him. We're about allowing him to fully participate in his humanity as God has called him to participate, but not centering him at the level of making other people in the congregation feel like we need him in order to survive. Um, I think that's the way forward in most of the churches I see that are Asian, Pan-Asian, you know, um, black and brown. I think we're finding our own, finding our own voice within ourselves and saying, God has given this community everything we need. If others want to join us, we're not going to say you can't participate, but we're not going to place, uh, you know, we're not going to, okay. we're not going to center them. That's right. That's right. Cause they, they're, they're used to the center. 
and we're used to centering them. I think those two, the piece from yeah. the first yes. part of our podcast and this piece have to go together, right? There's got to be the healing in our bodies, right? To say, tenemos valor. We can be leaders. We have theological, the Spirit's moving in us. We can read the scriptures. We can do interpretation, right? We need that first part in us, that racial reconciliation that we talked about, to happen all the while welcoming in non-centered white folk. <laughs> Those things have, have to happen together. I don't see how we can do it otherwise. For, forgive me for interrupting, but I, I just... No, perfect. I think you're right. Those right. two things hold each other up, right? Racism has two sides. And the two sides are that, you know, we're, we're leaning into each other and we keep holding this piece up. If one of us no longer leans in, the whole thing comes toppling down. And so we need to not lean into those, those roles that we've learned. And that's why for me, it is a practice of, of life. And the only hope is in that practice of life. Because that practice of life teaches us to think of ourselves with sober judgment. That's the whole humility piece. To know who you are and to know who you're not. And, yeah, and, I, and that's important because this way you do not usurp the place of another. And that's what centering is about. Yeah, and then that's hard. That's hard, doctora. That's pretty hard. Because even as someone who's from within the community, ethnically and culturally, um, and even if I grew up in this neighborhood, the reality is I left. I grew up in the suburbs. I got educated in, in white institutions. I got a degree at a incredibly white institution, you know, like and then I come <laughs> back. Um and, and you know, and, and, and I class changed. And my class changed because, you know, my, my education, but also I married into a uh, significant, well, you know, everything changed for me. And, and the reality is I had to come to grips with who I was and what I was carrying. And I think we as people of color, absolutely black leaders, Latina leaders, Asian leaders, we have to interrogate our own, what, what has happened to us culturally along the way, um, not just in our own healing, but in the assumptions that we carry into spaces. So I can tell you just as a point of confession, like, um, I was very sad and very um, lonely at first because I could tell that because I wasn't urban, um, people saw me as an outsider. Um, and so my Latinidad was in question to some people, even though I was like, are we going to play that game really? Because both my parents are from Latin America. I speak Spanish. You know, like, are we going to play that game about who's more Latino? Like, is Latino urban? Blah, blah, blah. And I just, but it was because I was wrestling with myself. Like, did God really call me here? Like, am I really the best person to be here? Um, and I had to go through that myself because um, there was mistrust because of the level of education that I carried and because of the fact that I was who I was in my body and I carried, um, you know, the, the suburban experience. And it, it taught me to um, think about what I was bringing into a room um, in a way that was different for me than for my husband, who literally looked like people would tell him like, when you're in the room, it feels like I'm in the room with my boss. You know, he's got that IT swagger. He's got, he's got that, you know, and he's a white guy and he's wearing a suit and he's doing, so um, it, it made people, they were just honest with him. It makes me, I don't feel like I can be myself. I feel like I'm in the room with my boss. And so for us as a couple, it was very hard entering into that space, but I had to decide like, is, is, am I going to be at the center of this journey for me? Or is this church going to be a family that I can do this journey with? And so um, I think that's that's one of the things we had had to ask ourselves was, and then along the way, whenever something would happen, oh, I can I just tell you this? I, I hope Vanessa listens to this. A woman, a friend of mine who worked in the office, Vanessa, I would come in and be like, you know, we would talk about whatever policy or something that was going on in the church. I was like, well, best practices is like this, and she just went, let me just tell you something, Sandra. Whenever you say best practices, I hear why people say. <laughs> We need a Vanessa in our lives. Everyone yeah, needs white a people Vanessa. Say. So she was like helping me to put a mirror in front of my face to see who I had become while I was in ministry in a white context. And I was like, oh, dang. Okay. Okay. I see. I see what you're saying. Okay. So she, it, those comments helped me to consider deconstructing and decolonizing who I had become. 
what I had become, what I believed. Um, and again, it was proximity and it was questions and it was, and it goes back to what you were saying, Doctora, about a lifestyle. And that's why I think for Chasing Justice, you know, we're not really trying to be like a conference or like a digital, you know, multimedia company. We're trying to help people that are in their 20s trying to figure out this justice thing, how to live a lifestyle, not be tweeters and influencers and, you know, wow. kind of posters and, you know, write their Senate, like they have to do all that, but to have an integrated lifestyle of justice where they're neighbors and they're stewards and they're citizens. Um, and so I think for me, that call to an in, like really mission integral to really like have a holistic view of your Christian faith in the world. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's what I'm hoping for. Like, I don't, I, I hope we all desire that, you know, like we want to be integrated with ourselves, our neighbor and the world. Amen. It looks like there are some movements that we've mentioned here as we close this conversation to, to get into these pieces, Sandra. There's a movement of confession. We, we, we yes. Need <laughs> we need to confess. Sometimes confession comes because someone has to confront us. We can't have confession without confrontation. Those things have to be there. And they're part of, when done in love, they're part of the community of faith. There's a movement of reconciliation, of learning to love ourselves, the fullness of who we are, of the history that has taken place, of, of how we look when we see ourselves in the mirror, and of reconciling ourselves with, with who we are as a people. And then there's a movement of worship that invites us to new language and imagination and a movement of community that invites us to proximity that transforms us. And then there's a movement of practice of life where every day we're moving to greater and greater freedom, but not by ourselves. It's freedom in order to be in community with others in such a way that together we're lifting each other up. We're hearing the Spirit say, this is the work. This is my dream for this community. And I believe that that is where the hope is. The hope is not in each other, in our structures. But the, the hope is in the dream of God. Continue to focus on what is a dream of God, knowing the work that it takes to keep moving toward that dream. Right. Isn't it awesome when you do a podcast with someone who is a brilliant summarizer of what's been discussed? Man, is that a gift. Oh, yeah. I'm going to listen to it again and catch all that. I know, right? She just does I, it in, in 30 seconds. She just gives you, this is it. Una palabra con la doctora, man. It's the best. It's my favorite part of doing this podcast. Hey, Sandra, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, you know, we, we champion you. We believe in what you're doing. We we are so grateful for chasing justice and how you have um, how you've been ministering to to Black, Brown, and other and everyone else, all the multis. If we can go back to that, we're trying to make sense of what it what it looks like to do Mission Integral. Um, I love that. I'm grateful for it. Um, and we're we're your allies at World Outspoken. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been awesome. Yeah, let me say to the audience, hey, next episode, so in two weeks, we've got two brothers who are going to be joining us as, as a kind of case study of what Sandra's talked about today. We're going to have Brother Dr. Charlie Dates, pastor of Progressive Baptist, joining us along with Dr. Eric Rivera, pastor of The Brook, Chicago. Both of them are going to be telling us stories about how they have been approaching their congregational ministry and how they have been protecting the traditions of their people as they continue to engage and minister multiculturally. Hey, if you have questions, doubts, concerns, you want to join us in the conversation, don't forget that you can leave us a message at 312-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. You can also submit that same question in the link in the show notes. In fact, while we were recording this episode, I received a question from one of the earlier episodes in the season. So follow us at World Outspoken on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow Sandra's ministry at Chasing Justice. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, right, Sandra? Anything else? No, that's good. Perfect. 
Follow her as well and see what they're up to over at Chasing Justice. Hey, blessings on everyone. Elizabeth, Sandra, you want to give a word de despedida? Let's continue to chase the hope. Yeah, I think I just want to say that um, the hope really is in us experiencing our healing for the sake of our communities and trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to release us into that collective liberation. I, I just have so much hope and joy in what I see happening in the churches in my neighborhood. So much hope and joy. Amen. Blessings on you, everyone. Se acabó. Está todo. Bendiciones.